Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today is our special Christmas episode where Erica and I tell you guys about horrific crimes in the Christmas spirit. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Abby. So pour yourselves a strong cup of fire department Christmas coffee and let's dive in. (laughs) As you probably heard mentioned in the intro, this is our special Christmas episode. So from the podcast family, we want to wish you guys a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and we are very thankful for you all. And to show you that we are going to continue on with our normal content of true crime. And we've got some lovely Christmas spirited, Christmas themed true crime stories for you guys. Yes. Merry Christmas, guys. Hope you enjoy. Our first story takes place in Chicago in 2013 on Christmas Eve. 18-year-old Alexis Valdez had been living with his aunt and her boyfriend. He'd been living there for about six months. He had moved into their apartment on the 2500 block of North Kildare Avenue. And the agreement between him and his aunt was that he could stay there if he would be going to school and working and helping pay the bills. On Christmas Eve, Alexis's aunt was out at a Christmas party and her boyfriend, Sylvester Diaz Hernandez, was at the apartment along with Alexis. There was some ongoing tension between Alexis and his aunt and Sylvester because he had not been holding up his end of the deal. Basically, he was not helping pay the bills and he didn't think he should be. And this was causing some issues. And he actually at one point was told that he was going to have to move out. However, on Christmas Eve, he was still staying there. And he was at the apartment drinking. And Sylvester came home and he had been visiting family members, but he came home and he found that Alexis had drank all of the beer. And so Sylvester's like, all right, well, let's go get some more. And they head out and they're just going nearby to um, a drugstore. So like I'm assuming the CVS or a Walgreens or something to pick up some more beer. On their way out, as I mentioned, Alexis had been drinking and had already been a little angry at the situation apparently. So he took a hammer and set it by the apartment door on their way out. And so they go to the store. It ended up being closed. So they just come right back home. And Sylvester goes into the apartment and Alexis follows him and grabs the hammer that he had set down and hits Sylvester in the back of the head. He ended up striking Sylvester about 10 more times with the hammer. He then proceeded to cover up all the windows in the apartment and turned on some really loud music. And this is where it gets a little bit more extreme. So just a heads up to you guys. He dismembered Sylvester. What he had done was cut off his head, ears, and nose, which he ended up putting on his aunt's bed. And he also pulled out Sylvester's eyes with his hands. That's disgusting. Yeah, it's brutal. He then proceeded to call 911 to report a dead body at the apartment. And when he was speaking with the dispatcher... 
the dispatcher's like, have you attempted CPR? And then Alexis just laughs and says, uh, the body has no head. Did he not mention to the dispatcher that, you know, I'm the one that did this? Did he say that to her? I guess at that point he hadn't, but I'm pretty sure the dispatcher probably picked up on that pretty quick. Like, I know some people react to death and things like that a little differently, but that's a little troubling. I want to know why he even called in the first place. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, what his thought process was. He clearly was, like, in a whole different realm than any sane human is. Because that is just seemingly out of nowhere. Like, tensions weren't bad enough that it would warrant a murder to that degree, especially. I mean, just because you weren't paying bills and they were maybe going to kick you out. Like, there was something else going on there for sure in his head. Officers arrive at the scene and... Alexis is just sitting outside in the front yard and he has an iPad with him and police are like, what's, what's going on? And he's like, shouldn't you arrest me before you ask questions? And the officer's like, why, why would we, why should I be arresting you? And he goes, because I just killed a man and he's in the basement. He then proceeds to tell officers after they um, find the body that he left Sylvester's head in his aunt's bed as a present and also went on to say that if she had been home he would have killed her too. I will say that I'm assuming the officers were grateful for his honesty as terrible as that is but they were probably like well this was an easy case solved and done. Yeah pretty open and shut right there. He went on to just go ahead and plead guilty to murder and was sentenced to Erica, let's uh, let's play a guessing game. How many years do you think he got for this crime? Your facial expressions and voice currently make me think that I should lowball this <laughs> at like five years. Okay, not quite that know. low, but he got 33 years. Did they just forget that life was an option? Yeah, I don't seem to have to life. I mean, maybe it was in Chicago. So I guess, you know, they see their share of crime. But this seems it was clearly premeditated to an extent because he moved that hammer over there. He full on confessed to it, pled guilty. I'm just which I'm sure the pleading guilty probably was to some type of um, plea bargain. But 33 years just seems like such a low end of the spectrum for a murder this severe and like the aftermath of it that just seems i seems a bit much to me i agree i mean there's a lot of charges there there's obviously the premeditation and the murder and the dismemberment and tampering with a crime scene like there's a a, probably a lot of different charges that he could have received and even though chicago sees a lot of murder i don't think they see you know full-on beheadings and like dismemberment I do think that 33 years is not enough. So with that, I'm going to pass this Christmas episode on to Erica. So my story takes place in 1996 when 32-year-old Patty Vaughn and her husband, Jerry Ray Vaughn, who went by JR, decided to separate after 11 years of marriage. When they separated, JR decided to move out of their house that they had shared together for the last 11 years, and he moved to San Antonio, Texas. And she stayed in their house, which was in La Verna, Texas, 
When they separated, JR moved out of their home that they shared in La Verna, Texas, and moved to San Antonio, Texas, while Patty stayed in the house in La Verna with their three children, who were aged five, five, seven, and nine at this time. After they separated, Patty began to date a former boyfriend of hers named Gary, but they started dating pretty quickly pretty quickly after the separation um the two of them were together by december and the separation had just occurred in october on december 13th jr found out about patty's new relationship with gary and this really made him angry i think that he probably felt in his mind he felt some sort of betrayal even though they were separated at this point so then on december 24th patty and her new boyfriend gary go to a dinner with her family and she introduces him to her family and the family all reported that this dinner seemed to go really well everything was great there were no concerns and that patty seemed really happy with gary the following day on december 25th or christmas day jr goes to patty's house to spend some time with their kids for Christmas. So apparently Patty was going out that night with her boyfriend, Gary, and then the kids are would be going to their aunt's house. I'm not sure if there was a specific reason why the kids couldn't go to JR's house that night, but he did want to come over and see the kids for a little while. While Gary was there, he and Patty do get into an argument regarding her new boyfriend because JR's not happy that she's in a new relationship. Later that day, some family members stopped by to see Patty and and JR was there and just told them she's in the bedroom but not feeling well, so just go back home. Like she'll talk to you later, kind of thing. Her younger sister, Jeannie, was 18 years old at this time, and she did say that she did talk with Patty on the phone that day to wish her a Merry Christmas, but that was all that she had talked to her about. She also said that when she called to talk to Patty, JR answered the phone and handed it to to Patty for her to talk. But Patty sounded like she'd been crying and sounded pretty distraught. And Jeannie was the last person other than JR to speak with Patty. So it's believed that sometime between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m., Patty goes missing from her house and she was reported missing by a family member because they were concerned that she they, they because they were concerned about her because she had left her children and hadn't gone to pick them up and hadn't been with Gary. Police did ask JR if they had if he had any information about her whereabouts because family had reported that JR had been at the house and was the last person to see Patty and he said that they had an argument and then she grabbed her keys and purse and then left by herself on december 26th so the next day her 1991 light blue dodge caravan was found by one of her co-workers with a flat tire about 15 miles from her house and only about five miles from her work so her co-worker had been driving and saw her van pulled over with a flat tire and he recognized it so he called Patty a couple times and she wouldn't answer. So he was like, well, I'll call JR. I know he probably has a copy of the keys for the van. And so he called her or so he called JR and JR's like, yeah, I here's the keys. And JR gave the keys to the coworker on his way to file for divorce from Patty. So they're no longer separate. He's officially filing for divorce at this point. So they found the vehicle, but they did not find her keys or her purse 
and they did not find Patty. They went on to further investigate the vehicle and discovered that her tire had been deflated on purpose to make it look like it had been a flat tire. Which, to be honest, is a pretty weak attempt. It's so funny you say that because I thought the same thing. I was like, can you not just like... Try to run over a nail nail in there? Yeah. Yeah. Like, not that I want to help these people and like give advice for that, but still. But like, that's pretty identifiable. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Inside the van, they also found men's clothing, including a red jumpsuit that was described as something that a mechanic would wear. And this had the letters JM on the back. So investigators are continuing to search. And obviously at this point, things are kind of seeming slightly suspicious. So they end up finding blood in the van all over her house, including her bedroom, her closet, her master bathroom, and on a mop that was in her house, which was evidence that somebody had tried to clean up some blood. So they tested the DNA and Abby, who do you think it belonged to? I'm going to go with Patty. That's a good guess. It all the blood did belong to Patty. So police do investigate Gary because he's her boyfriend at the time. So I think at this point, they're probably looking between JR and Gary as their main suspects. So Gary says, I didn't, I hadn't heard from her since Christmas Eve. And Gary did have an alibi for Christmas Day. He cooperated with the investigation and passed a lie detector test. So police ruled him out as a suspect. And not long after, Gary ended up actually dying in a car crash. And so, and police were like, you know, as sad as that is, we never considered him a suspect. So there's no hard feelings there. JR did agree to one interview with police, but hired an attorney pretty quickly later pretty quickly after. And then two months later, in February of 1997, Patty's mom decided to kind of take things into her own hands. So she broke into JR's house and assaulted him with a baseball bat for being involved with her daughter's disappearance. Holy crap. Uh, I gotta say I get it. I do too. I also have to say that this next part, I it personally makes me very happy. So she was charged with assault and burglary for obviously assaulting and burglarizing him. But in 2013, the charges were dropped because somehow the legal system just quote unquote forgot about this case. And so when they were reminded of it, they just had to drop it because it'd been so long. Hmm. So if you didn't believe in karma before. (laughs) Yeah, for real. She's really showing up in this situation, I felt like. But skipping back to 1997, I just want to throw that little tidbit in there because I thought it was kind of important. 
in May of 1997, police were still looking for evidence in her case. So there was a, an elementary school that JR had helped build and they searched behind the school gymnasium and they had cadaver dogs and ground penetrating radar searching this whole area because they were like there might be some there might be some potential evidence in this area they didn't end up finding anything but it was at least a start for a place to look in 2005 jr had patty declared legally dead and so then she he attempted to collect her life insurance at this point and Shortly after this, like, he, so it was denied basically for him to get the life insurance. And Patsy, Patty's mom, ends up filing a civil wrongful death suit against him. And a judge ends up ruling that the life insurance payout would actually go to Patty's children instead of JR. Good. Yes. In December of 2018, some investigators said that they thought they were pretty close to solving her case because there was some new evidence. So they had retested the van and ended up finding DNA from an unknown female inside the van that didn't belong to Patty. So they said that JR is still their primary suspect, but there's three friends of the family that they believe helped with disposing of her body. Uh, holy shit. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Doing a terrible thing. Yes, absolutely. The identities of these three people aren't known. Police said that they think they know who they are. And they believe that the DNA, the female DNA found in the van belongs to one of these three friends. There was a memorial service held for Patty on the 10th anniversary of her disappearance. And at this point, there's not really any answers completely. Her body has never been found JR is believed to have been the one to have murdered her, even though there's no specific evidence completely connecting him. He still claims that he's innocent. He moved out of Texas and lives in Colorado now. So her description, she's currently listed as endangered missing. She was 32 years old when she disappeared. About 5'6", 5, 5'7", five, 120 pounds. She was wearing a cream-colored blouse, black slacks, a bracelet, a gold watch, a gold ring, a necklace with a heart-shaped diamond pendant, diamond stud earrings, a wedding band, and possibly a thumb ring. She was a Caucasian female with blonde hair, green eyes. Her ears are pierced, and she has a, she has a small mole on her right side of her chin, and then a scar from an appendectomy on her abdomen. If you have any information regarding her disappearance, and potential murder, you can contact the Bexar County Sheriff's Office at 210-335-8477. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.